morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. We're going to move quickly and get started in the book of Titus. So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, will you open up to the book of Titus? There's a black uh, Bible in front of you in the pews if you're using that, page 1252 if you're looking for it. A new international version, the book of Titus. We've been in Titus for about six weeks now. Uh, we started in the beginning of July. It's been kind of our summer series and just looking through Titus and seeing what Paul has to say to the uh, to his young pastor Titus and how he is reaching and preaching to this church in Crete. And so the church in Crete had some very similar, and we've talked about this throughout the series, some similar uh, drawbacks as to what we see here in our modern context. That, that church in Crete lived in a pluralistic society where there was a lot of religious uh, backgrounds all kind of being melded together and where they would say, well, you can worship that God, I'll just add this one together. And they just kind of put all the pieces together and just kind of added them all together. They also lived in a culture that was antagonistic to Christianity. And so they were constantly looking for opportunities to damage the cause of Christ. They also did not believe in absolute truth. In fact, they believed that there was many truths and you could just combine them together. And isn't that the culture that we are living in today? I was in a conversation uh, just last week about how uh, our current political climate allows us to have this discussion that we haven't had in a number of years about what is truth. When was the last time uh, you watched the news agencies and them debating back and forth about what is fact, what is actual truth, what is hard evidence of truth versus what is hearsay and what is opinion? And actually in our modern culture that hasn't been the case for a number of years because we've kind of gotten this postmodern where whatever is good for you is good for you, and whatever is good for you on this side, that's good for you. But the reality is, is right now we have this big opportunity to be able to talk about what is truth, and truth matters, and what is the essence of truth, and how do we validate what truth is. And in this context, this is very similar to what Titus was dealing with there, so it should sound familiar. Uh, the Christians there were going to have to proclaim absolute truth rooted in absolute gospel where the salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so this is the context that Pastor Titus is going to the church in Crete and teaching and preaching and putting together and setting up uh, the elders of the church. And this is the context in which he is working. Uh, there are many applications then for us today. And as we open a Bible today, we're going to dig into that. And you're going to see that's incredibly relevant for us this morning. Knowing that the Romans of Crete would be going about making many false accusations about Christians, it's applicable for us today. Knowing that the Romans at Crete were going to be going about and making many opportunities to, to punch holes if they could in the teachings that Christians were following, that they would do all that they could to mess with that, it's applicable to us today. Paul wanted to be certain that the, those in Crete, that those followers of Christ in Crete would be able to have tangible evidence of the gospel lived out in front of people that could not be refuted. That it was going to be so obvious that the gospel is being lived out and so tangible for them that they would not be able to go after them. And this comes, this charge that he is giving Titus and the church there in Crete, this, this charge he gives them is not without distractions. And so this morning's message title is Avoiding Distractions. We asked that question during the opening of, of what was your first vehicle. And many people, and at least it was for me, that your first vehicle was also when you were learning to drive. Uh, some of you didn't get it till later, but that's the way it was for me. And if you'll remember what it was like learning how to drive, in my neighborhood, I live in, a, in the village of Williamsville, less than a mile away from here, and we have a quiet street, and so it's a perfect place 
that driver's ed cars come through and try to learn how to parallel park and try to learn how to negotiate four-way stop signs and everything. It's always happening in our neighborhood. So if you ever come over to visit, pull in the driveway rather than parking on the street because there's going to be some driver's ed vehicles coming through and we've got some uh, damage because of that on our own vehicle. Um, But if you remember learning how to parallel park your vehicle on a quiet back street where nobody was messing with you, now take that and contrast that with what it's like to park on a busy street. Let's say Main Street here in Williamsville. You're trying to parallel park during the middle of Old Homes Days. And when there's people everywhere, there's a festival going on and there's, everyone's walking back and forth and the police are involved and you've got cars honking their horn at you because you're stopping traffic. And you're not sure whether or not your right-hand blinker is supposed to block all lanes or just the right-hand lane. And it's, it's miserable, right? There's distractions everywhere. Performing the same task when there are distractions everywhere is much more difficult. And so what we have here are these believers in Crete have distractions all over them. And so today's message is going to be about avoiding distractions. The Cretans were particularly contentious people. They were argumentative. They were divisive. And in particular, the thing that connects with our world today, the two subjects that they constantly debated about, that they were constantly trying to divide one another up about, were the two areas of politics and religion. What are the two, poli- the two subjects you should never speak on when you go to spend some time with someone for dinner? Politics and religion. So how are we going to talk about the subjects of politics and religion? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about it. So this is exactly what Paul is going to deal with. So just to give you an overview of where we're going today, you'll see in, uh, in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, verses 1 and 2 deal with politics. And then when you fast forward to verse 11 and 12 is going to deal with religion. So we've got politics and religion, and then the verses 3 through 8, right in the middle of it, deals with the centrality of the gospel. And that the gospel is going to deal with these two issues of politics and religion. And the gospel actually has something to say about these two issues of politics and religion. And when politics and religion try to divide us, what we actually find is this. And if you're taking notes, this is the first thing on that white sheet of paper that you got this morning when we handed out the bulletins. When the gospel is in the center... A transformed gospel life is a precious gift that closes the door on distracted living. A transformed gospel life is a precious gift that closes the door on distracted living. So if you have those two options of politics and religion, it closes the door on those distractions. It says, let's keep the gospel. Let's keep this at the centrality of all that we do and all that we say and all that we are about. Let's not get distracted by these things. Because the people there in Crete would love to divide you over these two subjects. It's the same world that we live in today. That we could be divided very easily over these two subjects. And the Apostle Paul says, don't get distracted. So as we talk about these things, the transformed gospel life is a precious gift that closes the door on distracted living. How is it that it closes the door? I'm glad you asked. Let's get started. The gospel transforms a new Goal. That is your first fill-in for you this morning if you're following along in your notes. A gospel transforms a new goal. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The first thing that Paul is going to do in chapter 3 is remind us that we shouldn't get caught up in politics, especially when it causes strife with our friends and our family and strife with those in authority. Check this out, verse 1. Remind the people 
to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. When it comes to politics, Paul is telling Christians, submit to the government and to avoid slandering and arguing with others. The difference between the world that we live in and the world that they were living in, their government was absolutely and entirely and completely corrupt. They were under an oppressive rule by the Romans, and yet he is telling them in that context, rather than creating a divisive feel and without the Christians being the ones who are fighting back and pushing against the government, what does he tell them to do? It says, don't get caught up in it because you are to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. He knew that the Christians there in that context were going to get engrossed in political controversy, and it distracted them from the real goal, which is what? making disciples. They could get distracted. They could get pulled away. They could be doing very good things. They could be making a a good uh, progress towards meeting some of these political goals that matter to them and to their people. But he said, don't get distracted there because the main thing that you are about is making disciples. Not only would the government crack down on the Christians, As they were expanding the church, the government was going to come in and do that. Not only would the government be able to slow down the growth of the church, it was also now going to give them a bad reputation. Because if they went to battle with the government, they were going to have this bad reputation of being anti-government. And so if they did that, as the non-believers looked there and saw that, they would now start to slow the growth of the church. Because they would get into political debates rather than the real debate of who is Christ. Who is our Savior? Who is our Lord? God is deeply concerned with growing his kingdom. We shouldn't get up, caught up in stuff that is pulling away from that and distracting us from the main thing. Sometimes those distractions keep us from being able to share the gospel. When we're known about our politics rather than knowing about Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is that we can still be involved in politics. We can still perform our civic duty, our responsibilities. But we need to always remember that our real priority is not what person is in the Oval Office. Our real priority is not the person who is our local congressman. Our real priority is not who is the mayor of this town. Our real priority, the bottom line, is the gospel. And how are we living our lives? And how are we connecting with our neighbors? And what does it look like? We are to pursue God first and foremost. Yesterday I had the opportunity to do a challenge called the Tough Mudder. There's actually a few of us from the church uh, who went out and did it. It's a, it's, they'd say very carefully, said it's not a race, it's a challenge. You just go through and you have all these different obstacles in the mud. It was at Kissing Bridge, which is a, a ski resort near here. And so uh, you went up and down the mountain and we got some mud that they had planned ahead of us and all these different events in the mud. And then we had what they called organic mud because it was raining on us uh, while the event was going on. And you're trying to run up the side of a ski slope and there's mud everywhere. It's just miserable. And we paid a lot of money for that mud. But it was fun. But 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I remember being five or six years old, and my dad, uh, in the springtime, we would uh, gather sap buckets because we'd make maple syrup on our farm. And so we'd gather up the sap buckets. And I remember, and dad tells a story, and he laughs through it, and he's crying when he's telling it about, and happy tears, one of those things where 
that he, he walks me down this road because in the, it's the springtime and, and of course these uh, tractors are out in the middle of the woods and it's just a muddy thing and there's this mud pit where we had already that morning got a tractor stuck in the mud. So it's very, very deep. And he tells me, said, just remember, like this, this verse says, remind. He says, remember that that mud is deep and your boots are going to get stuck in it. Just stay as far away from this area as you can. And according to my dad, the way the story goes is I was looking at it and I just, just kind of just kept walking towards it as if there was a magnet in the center of that thing and I fell headlong into this mud pit. The reality is, is when it comes to politics, and I know you've heard people slinging mud and that type of thing. I'm not trying to get into politics this morning. But there are times when it just draws you in and the next thing you know, you're laying face down in the mud going, what on earth? is going on, and your dad's standing at the side laughing at you saying, I told you so. Stay out of the mud. Stay away. And the gospel transforms a new goal. That new goal is not to defend ourselves constantly. That new goal is not to be right and to be able to set the record straight. Or anything. So the new goal is actually the gospel and sharing the gospel. The gospel transforms a new goal, and then secondly, the gospel transforms a new identity, a new identity. Verse 3, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Remember I said that there was the two bookends. We dealt with politics and we dealt with religion. And the center of it is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the center of the gospel. Paul's overall concern, his main focus of this passage is the Christians who are living in the middle of a pagan world. So how can we gain a platform by which to share the gospel with the pagan world around us? How can we get a platform to be able to share with those who are there? In our daily lives, and he says we do this. Paul's answer is we must engage in good deeds and in our society. We must remember that we used to be just like the unbelievers who are around us. Now, some of you are coming from a Christian home. You're coming from a Christian context. Some of you have been here in this local body, this local church, for your entire life. And so when this describes... When this describes, remember you and you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You're just going, wait, I wasn't like that. I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't go that way. But the reality is if, if you have any level of spiritual maturity, you know and you realize that those behaviors, those attitudes are just beneath the surface of your heart. Because that is what the sin nature does. And that is what each and every one of us was born with. It was a sin nature that gives us the proclivity to just fall right into sin at a moment's notice. And then you do a mental checklist in your mind of people who also have grown up in church and grown up in this church. You can go through the list of people who had every resource available to them. And just beneath the surface, that sin crept up on them and pulled them down. 
Romans 3, chapter 10, describes the human race. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You are not the exception to this verse. There is not even one. The centrality of the gospel here. You see, every non-Christian religion, every cult, and even the two major branches of uh, Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, that teaches somehow that you can do works to be able to get a better standing before God. And these verses here said, it's not because of works that you have done, but because of what? Jesus. If you were with us a few months ago, we used the illustration of just the the difference between all the religions of the world have to do with what you do. The letters D-O, the bottom line of Jesus Christ and the man that we follow. The God that we follow who became a man and lived on the earth is that he is not what we do. It has been already done. According to his mercy, he has saved us. And through that we have what? Verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, you might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Life looks differently when you live in in the gospel. A gospel-transformed life has hope. The local church, believers, ought to have hope written all over your face. As some of you scowl back at me right now. The hope of eternal life should just glow off of us like a city on a hill is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. The gospel transforms a new goal. The gospel transforms a new identity. One of our favorite TV shows as a family is Chip and Joanna Joanna Gaines, Fixer Upper. Some of you know what it is, many of you. When they go into a house, it looks like a dump. It's falling in. You know, there's critters running everywhere. There's animals living in the house. I, I mean, it is awful. But when they have the great reveal and you look at that house, it's unrecognizable as what it used to be. You can barely look at that house, certainly on the inside, and even remember what it looked like if it wasn't for those before and after pictures. That house has a new identity. The gospel transforms a new identity in you and me. We ought to be transformed. That's what the gospel does. We are transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're no longer who you used to be. You have a new identity. That's what the gospel does. Thirdly, the gospel transforms a new focus. Not only did the Cretans argue about politics, but they loved to squabble over, as we already discussed, religious matters. Rather than getting all fired up about that stuff, this is what Paul says in verse 8. He says, this is the trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things. So those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves into doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The trustworthy saying he is talking about is what he just discussed there in the previous verses about not by works of righteousness we do, but according to his mercy. That's the trustworthy saying. That's the basis of our faith. He says that we should focus on the basics of the gospel. It's not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Zs of Christianity. That's what Tim Keller says. And so as we look at that, the solution is Jesus, and our response is faith, and not to spend our time fighting over less essential things. It's not that theology doesn't matter, because it does. 
But when that's what we begin to debate about and that's what we begin to argue about, it should not be our priority. It shouldn't distract us because it leads to divisions, as we will talk about as verses 10 and 11 cover. When I did this Tough mutter yesterday, one of my buddies was telling me that his daughter, they're about to go to school and she's in kindergarten and our two kids are going to be in the same class. He says, hey, do you mind having your daughter just say nice things to my daughter about her new glasses? She's really really worried that everyone's going to notice her new glasses. And just, if, if she's okay with it, just saying, boy, I really like those glasses. Do you remember the, those of you who wear glasses? Remember when you first got glasses? I was in fifth grade. I remember because I was going to a new school. I changed from the Christian school to the public school, and now I was in middle school. And I went from a class of three students in my graduating, potential graduating class to a whole lot more than that. I'm going to the new school, and during the, the process, the incoming process, they did an eye exam, and they said, you kid can't see. I couldn't see anything. And so I got new glasses, and they were these gold, wicked awesome glasses, and they were bifocals. So my first pair of glasses were bifocals, and, and I looked hideous. And I was, man, welcome to the new school, welcome to middle school. These are the worst years of my life. But the first time you get glasses, and almost everyone says this, if you remember when you got your glasses, you put on glasses and you go outside and all of a sudden you see what? You see the leaves on the trees. Do you remember that? Before that, it was just kind of this green space. And you knew they were leaves and you'd seen them up close, but now you could actually see them blowing in the wind. And some of you need to get your glasses fixed because you haven't seen leaves in a long time. And you drove here this morning. That's what focus does. That's what 2020 vision does, is all of a sudden you can see the detail and everything comes alive. And when, when the gospel transforms your life, all of a sudden you see life in great detail. It brings everything into focus. Every pastor can tell you, at least circumstantially, and there's evidence that, that backs this up. I'm talking about 2020 vision. In most churches, there's something called the 2080 principle where 20% of the church does 80% of the work. You've heard this before. 20% of the church does 80% of the work. That is not 2020 vision. You see that? That's blurry. When you're looking out of really what the church could be doing, it is out of focus. It's out of sync. Because if the church was focused, you'd be able to see some things and see them clearly. What would 2020 vision look like here? And we've talked about this before. Because 2020 vision, those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. They are actively pursuing God, and you can see them doing stuff and interacting with one another in a godly manner, in a godly fashion. And just as a side note, so that you know what we're talking about here, we use these terms often. We want every man, woman, and child here as a church, we invite you to find your place upward in Christ, inward in the church, and outward in the community. Those three things, if you have found your place in those three things, we believe that you are getting awful close to what it looks like to be able to see life in focus. You've got that relationship with Christ. You've got relationship with other believers, and you are engaging the community. If any one of those things is out of focus, you're just seeing mush. If any one of those things is out of focus, you can be involved in the church, and you can be doing great things in the community, but if you don't have a relationship with God... You're out of focus. You can be in relationship with God and you can be doing great things here as a church, but if the community has never seen you before, you're out of focus. 
Don't get distracted. Keep the gospel as the center of your focal point. When that is in focus, when everything is spot on, you know the difference. The gospel transforms a new focus. Fourthly, the gospel transforms a new target. Ultimately, God doesn't want us to be divided as Christians, but united. This is the goal. This is the new target, and it needs to be protected. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are what? Unprofitable and useless. Warn, verse 10, a divisive person once and then warn them again. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. Our new target, when the gospel transforms us, our new target is unity. Unity is so important that if people are threatening it, it says here that we should not tolerate that. We fight for unity because it is the most powerful witness that we have to the world. Jesus tells us to love one another, and the world will know you are my disciples by what? Because you love one another. We need to fight for unity. And in that, that also means that we need to reject, as it says here, foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments because they are unprofitable and they are useless. We need to reject that, to throw it away. And if these people, as it's describing here, continue to stir up controversy after two warnings, Paul says, throw them out. Get rid of them. Now, if you're reading this and you're here and you're thinking through this, you're like, man, that, Paul, that, that's pretty harsh. Aren't we supposed to love everyone? The Greek word he uses here for those who cause division is the same Greek word that we get the word heretic from. Now, the word heretic for us, when I say that word, that stirs up different, different thoughts, right? That stirs up someone who has, has started a cult. That stirs up someone who is teaching a false gospel, who, who is teaching something that is entirely antithetical to what we know as Orthodox Christianity. But yet he uses that same word to describe someone who is divisive in the local church, a person who is constantly meddling, a person who is constantly stirring up strife, constantly asking divisive questions, constantly questioning leadership, constantly going after God's chosen people and saying, what are you doing, why are you doing it? And they're dividing the church, and he calls them what? A heretic. And he says, throw them out. Because unity needs to be put as our new target. We reject heresy. Our new target is unity. Now, I need to be careful when I say that because some of you know of churches and know of situations where unity was put above all else. That we say we are together and it does not matter how people live and how they behave and they can live in sin and we still allow them to be in leadership. That is not what it's saying. It is saying unity, we reject heresy in light of what? The previous gospel that has been laid out, the trustworthy saying that has been put out there of who Jesus is. We reaffirm that the gospel is central. We will not be distracted by politics. We will not be distracted by religion. 
and these arguments that go back and forth uh, about controversies and genealogies. This was something that the Jews would do because they could put themselves at higher stature. If they could figure out a way to be able to get their genealogy connected back to some of their spiritual forefathers to say, I am a descendant of Abraham. I am a descendant of Elijah. They could put themselves up on a pedestal that they're a little bit higher than the person next to them. If they could go through and they could argue a theological stance a little bit better than the person next to them, then they could put themselves up a little bit higher. And that says there's no place for that in the church. Reject that. Come back to the center of the gospel. We reject heresy. Our new target is unity. For it is not by works of righteousness we've done, but according to his mercy. We cannot miss this. Because even as I'm describing this, you know that this is where we fail. This is where we fall. This is where we get drawn into the mud on one side or the other. We get distracted. And it is by his mercy that he pulls us back in. You see, for followers of Christ, a transformed gospel life is a precious gift that closes the door on distracted living. It no longer allows it. It closes the door on distracted living. It is a precious gift. We've made that an acronym this morning. It is a new goal, a new identity, a new focus, a new target. That is the gift for the believer. This passage is written for the believer. You understand that? It is a mistake if you are going after someone, as it, as it says here, to be able to call someone a heretic and throw them out of the church, that is someone who is already a believer, who is already part of the body of Christ. If you are going after someone who has not given their life to Christ in that way, that is also sin. Because you should not and cannot expect that person to understand that. And that is a sin of the church across the board. The church has been judgmental to those who are far from Christ and said, you are living in a way that is sinful. Well, of course, they don't know Jesus. He has not transformed their lives. But if he has transformed your life, what? You ought to look differently. As the band is coming, we're about to close our service this morning. That is, that is the call to you as the church, as the follower of Christ. Will you live a transformed life? As though you had this gift from God, you know that you've got this gift, this precious gift that I am living in the gospel. And when I live in the gospel, it does not, it keeps you from being distracted from politics. It keeps you from being distracted by religious practices and preferences. If you're here this morning, though, and you're not already a follower of Christ, you are one who is far from Christ, there's a gift for you as well. Romans 6.23 describes this gift. For all have sinned. And comes, that's, that's Romans 3.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is God's call to you this morning. If you do not know him, if you do not understand him, let it be this church that we would live a witness out in front of people, that our love would demonstrate what it means to live in the center of the gospel, to live a transformed life. Let us live that out in front of you so that you would be called to him and want this gift of eternal life that he offers to you. The road that you are walking down right now leads to sin and destruction. But the road that he calls you to ends in eternal life. 
It's not what you do. It's not how many works you can compile together today or tomorrow or this week. No, he's already done that for you. And friend, you as this church, if you're a member of this church, if you're a regular attender here, you need to be reminded of that again today, that your life needs to demonstrate the gospel. And it needs to be tangible to those who are far from Christ. It needs to be tangible to those who are close to Christ. It needs to be a transformed life, a new identity that you would have never recognized before Jesus came into your life. So, dear Lord, this morning we thank you for this, this challenge from your word, Lord, that we are to be transformed by the gospel, that our lives would not look the same as they used to, Lord, that we would have different goals, that we would have different targets, that we'd have a different focus. And the gospel is just day after day keeps honing that in more and more and more. For those who are here this morning and have not made that decision, Lord, to chase hard after you. They would place themselves on a scale of one to 10 spiritually, they are one, two, three, but they know that they have not devoted themselves to you. Lord, I pray that they would accept that gift of eternal life today with the absolute truth that we see in scripture. When you quote it in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is who we chase hard after today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it impacts us, the way that it pierces us. I pray this pierce hearts this morning. There'll be those who are bold enough to respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.